ideas behind it. So we're going we're gonna to have to figure this out together. Um, I realized that when I taught of Svartam Lachem last, which was two years ago, it wasn't actually this memory. It was a... It was a member of the of the of the Rebbe of the Svartim Lachem. So I was like continuing to learn in here. I was like, oh, I don't remember it being this deep. And I was like, okay, I learned a different one. So it gets a little bit deep now. And so we're gonna figure out together how how to bring it down and not get lost too much in the in again in the Kabbalah behind the message. Okay. Um, but are we clear on that concept of Ratzo so far? Yeah, on the Avaida of Ratzo. Okay. Because now we're moving on to the next idea. We said after we've had the process and experience of Ratzel, which needs to come first, right? Which is the process of leaving behind our limited beliefs, the power within all of us that limits the godly soul as it's enclosed within the animal soul and tells it, this is it. This, this is all that there is. What you see is what you get. And we have to leave that behind by tapping into the innate desire of the godly soul to reach toward Hashem. We're reaching toward Havaya. We're reaching toward transcendence and leaving behind these limited beliefs. That's the first step that's very, very necessary in this process before we receive the Torah. And that's what happened when we left Egypt. It happened, good morning. It ha- oh, I saw you earlier. It happened, with, um, it happened with a lot of miracles and with a lot of help and with a lot of inspiration. Um, but it enabled us to leave behind our boundaries. And again, only the godly soul was impacted by this and the animal soul, um, the animal soul remained, remained the same. So now we're moving on to what happens after Ratzo, what happened right after they left Egypt, which was that they started to count the Aymer. So we're going to see this as a two-step process. And in Halacha and, and, um, and all, uh, also Hasidus sees the counting of the Omer as two, two processes that happened at the same time. Process number one was the Korban Omer that was brought, which has a significance also within our Avodah Hashem. And process number two was the immediate starting of the counting of the Omer right after bringing the Korban Omer. So these are both included within the idea of counting the Omer and of the idea of refining our animal soul and preparing it for Matan Torah. So the first process, which is what's called Hanafata Omer, the process where they would bring a specific Omer, which is a specific measurement of barley, of um, Soora, Soora is barley. Um, and a fifth eggs. 43 and a half eggs a and fifth. a fifth and a of that's, a, that's a lot mm-hmm. yeah it's like this much it's like a basket of, of flour right it was in a basket I'm assuming right they weren't holding it I think it was they weren't they holding they it weren't like holding this they were, I'm assuming it was in a basket mm-hmm. and there was a process where they would make a blessing and the Kohen would wave it right and so we're going to discuss what that significance is it's pretty deep um, but before we get into the deep part of what was going on when the Kohen was waving it, which if you don't fully get, that's really fine. Um, it's really fine, but we need to understand what's the significance for us. What's this next part of the, the Avodah? So, so far what's happened in our process is that our godly soul has, is yearning and reaching toward its source and is elevating almost the animal soul up towards its source, but the animal soul remains an animal, okay? And so... We are reaching toward a new perspective and leaving an old perspective behind. But we don't have this new perspective yet. We haven't actually achieved anything. We've just left the old perspective behind, said there's something beyond Elohim. There's something beyond just Hashem as I see him in nature. Yeah. Is that something we need to do? So it's, this next step is a bit complicated because it's a, considered a very, very lofty avada. It's getting an entirely new perspective into the brain of the animal soul. It's the elevation of the brain, as we're going to discuss. 
And basically, according to all opinions, it's not something we're able to do today. Because... And so low? Yeah. When did we lose that? Not everyone was able to do it ever, actually. But what happened was, it was a very, very specific avoda that happened once a year in the Beit HaMikdash in one day and was done by the Kohen specifically. Um, it had to be done by a specific level of person at a specific time and it happened in a moment. And the reason it happened in a moment instead of the process of elevating the emotions, which happens over seven weeks, is because it's a, change, it's a complete change in consciousness, which could happen in one moment. That's it. Now you have a completely different perspective on life that can happen in one second. However, to actually have that new perspective is a very, very lofty level to reach because it means that from now on, your animal soul's mind, which usually, what's the animal soul's mind in a state of? Serving its emotions, right? The animal soul resides in the heart, and secondarily, it's secondary, it's a holiday home, so to speak. It's secondary residences in the mind. So our heart has instincts. Sorry, do you mind? It's just distracting for me if you're okay. Um, our heart has certain instincts, our animal soul's heart, right? And those instincts are towards selfishness and towards serving itself. And then our brain comes in and says, how can I help the heart get those things? That's the natural way that the brain of the animal soul works. The process of Hanafata Omer, of this waving of the Omer of the common Arba, is elevating the brain of the animal soul that instead of serving downwards, serving that which is below it, its emotions, it's serving that which is above it, which is Hashem. What's above the mind? Hashem, the consciousness of Hashem. So now it's tapped into that which is above it, which is the consciousness that Hashem exists and that Hashem transcends everything and Hashem is infused within the whole world instead of serving the consciousness which is everything is about me, which is the natural state that the animal soul is in. So it's a very, very lofty avoda because once this happens, a person is a completely changed person. Changing our midot, as we're going to see, which is the next step, changing our emotions, that itself is also debatable. Is that something we're able to do today? Or is that not something we're able to do today? Um, not discussed here specifically, but in the mimer I was mentioning to you earlier. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll learn it in one class after this mimer. Um, there's a discussion. Everybody agrees that this avada of elevating the mind, of taking the mind of the animal soul, which its natural state is to serve its emotions and to serve its selfishness, its selfish impulses, and instead to realign it with the truth, which is that everything is Hashem. That is the process of Hanafata Omer, of bringing the Korban Omer, and that is not something that we're able to do today. Yes? This sounds like becoming a topic. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's why we're not able to do it. Okay. Not because, like... Was it ever accessible? So even in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, it was done by one person in the Beis HaMikdash on one day. It was a unique avoda. It's a very unique avoda. And it's not something that, yeah, not, not because of, not even because of Yuridat HaDorot, not because we're in this low generation, but because we're not Sadiqim. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Okay, I was just going to ask, like, when people go to Beis HaMikdash for this and go through this whole process, was it something that, like, lasts, like, like, they were Sadiqim for, like, a good chunk of time or is it kind of just like in that moment so what happened was that immediately after bringing the omer they counted the omer mm -hmm. so which is taking that new consciousness and now bringing it into your emotions so what i'm trying what i don't have a source for this but what i think what i think is that on that day even generations later even today the what day that we start counting the omer something spiritual happens above which gives us 
allows us to tap into a new consciousness and draw that down into the new avada of refining our emotions. But to actually have that switch, which the Jewish people would have this new consciousness because they would come to the base of Mikdash and this process would happen and they'd get that like literally a new perspective. We don't have that today. And it's not something that we can fully strive for. But it is a part of this avoda, and there's a significance in preparing us for the next step, which is the spirit of which is what we're trying to understand what that's about. So it's going to get technical in terms of what is happening spiritually when the Kohen is waving the Omer. What does the Omer represent? What, is, what, is the, what does the Bali represent, right? Which is animal food. What does an animal represent, right? What does the Kohen represent? And what does the waving represent, okay? So it's going to get... It's going to get technical. It's going to get Kabbalistic. Before we get to Kabbalistic, let's try to bring it down one more time again. Practically, okay? What's happening? Now we've, we've experienced Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The Jewish people, as they've gotten now to the Beis HaMikdash for the Korban Omer, they had just celebrated Pesach. They've left behind their preconceptions and the, the mistaken notions that the godly soul took on when it came into the body that lasted throughout the year, which was that this is it, Right? Hashem, Hashem exists maybe down here, but there's nothing beyond. There's nothing to strive upwards for. We leave that behind. We leave behind it. We've left behind our Egypt. We're reaching beyond now to something higher. We haven't reached anything higher yet, though. We're reaching. Ratzon means I'm yearning. Not that I have it, but that I'm yearning for something. That's Mitzrayim. Now we get to the Beit HaMikdash. Now we get to the second day of Pesach. And there was this process of the Korban Omer that the Kohen takes a specific measurement of barley, of animal food, and waves it around, okay? And the idea is that he's taking the animal, okay, and the way that the animal is limited in this world, the animal soul, and he's raising it up to a new consciousness, which the idea is called, the process is called birur hamochin. Okay. How is that spelled? In English. Okay, well, I can just make that up. <laughs> B-I-R-U-R, birur. Do you guys know what birur means? Bira means a refinement. Refinement. Hamochin. Hey, mem, vav, chet, yud, nun. Oh, in English. H A H A M O C H I N. Hamochin, which means a refinement of the brain. This is the process where the brain, the not just the brain, but the intellectual capacities of the animal soul go through a refinement, and they are now redirected towards. They're a source to that which is beyond them, which is Hashem, instead of being tied down and a slave to that which is below them, their emotions. That is the process that happens in Hanafat Omar. And then we'll see that that enables us to then go into the next stage, which is shining the spherot into our emotions, which we have to discuss what that is. Well, it's connected because the godly soul is always looking upwards. It's transcendent. And that's why it starts off in the brain and it's connected to that which is above it. And then its emotions follow the brain. Yeah. As opposed to the animal soul, the brain follows the emotions. So the primary residence of the godly soul is in the brain. And that's because it's connected to something much higher. Okay. So it's connected, but it's not exactly what we're saying here. Because in this context... Already the godly soul, the godly soul is refined at this point because the godly soul, we've tapped into its innate desire to be reaching towards Hashem. We've left, we've, we've gotten rid of the covering over and the concealments of the godly soul that it got 
when it was in this body, and that's the process of Yitziat Mitzrayim, for releasing the godly soul from its entrapment in, in, in Egypt, right? Leaving Egypt. So the godly soul is good, it's sorted, but now our animal soul needs to change. And so step number one of the changing of the process of the animal soul is to elevate the mind of the animal soul, okay? And again, practically for us today, not so practical. I do think, and I do, would really like to check some sources to find out, that something spiritual is happening on that day that's enabling us, that's, that's giving some sort of peripheral new perspective to the brain that allows us to then start to change our emotions because we know we need some sort of, some sort of understanding and grasp of the transcendent in order to work on ourselves. So exactly how that looks for us today, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, um, but I do know that it, um, based on the other mimer that I learned, that it's not, it's considered not something that we should actively try to achieve because it's not possible, okay? Yes? I thought there was value in striving for something even if you'll never get it. There is. The Altarva speaks about that in Tanya, that sometimes if you mimic the, the, the tzaddik, that you can become the tzaddik if Hashem gives you a, a gift. But that's for somebody who's already fully a Bainani. Uh, <laughs> so so there's, two, there's two ideas. There's two ideas. There's one idea that somebody who's already fully a Bainani and he's kind of tired of the fact that even though he's a Bainani and he's doing everything right, he has to fight for the rest of his life. He can start to mimic the fact that he loves Hashem, which is what characterizes a tzaddik or a Bainani, and maybe Hashem will give him a gift that he'll actually achieve this love of Hashem and become a tzaddik. That's one aspect. Another aspect is that we learn about transcendent, loftier things. For example, we learn about tzaddikim in the Sefer, the Sefer Benonim. We learn about the elevated Teshova and the elevated love and the elevated Shabbat and all these levels that we say we can't even really reach ourselves today in order to, so to speak, give us a bird's eye view and take us out of the struggle a little bit. When you learn about these transcendent lofty ideas, sometimes it raises you up and raises you up about, above the battle that you're entangled in. So those are the two ideas there. However, just as we tell people, and the ultra tells people, it's clearly in the Tanya, like, who do you think you are to demand that you shouldn't have a struggle? Like, no, <laughs> this is, so who do you think you are to demand that you should be a tzaddik? You're not a tzaddik. Do, do your job, basically, which is a bainani. So, so to hear, like, don't, we, we learn about this process, obviously. This is a process that Jewish people all gather together to experience, but we should know that it's not something that um, we can achieve. I don't even know if we'd know where to start. Like, honestly, where would you start with elevating your brain, your animal soul's brain? Like, it's, the idea that I, that I learned is that somebody who's a real, real Talmud Chacham, like a, actually, yes, a practical application, someone who's a real, real Talmud Chacham, that his job, what does it mean to elevate his brain? To connect his Torah study to Hashem and to have it always, always, always connected to its source, which is very hard to do. Imagine every single time we learn, every single time we learn Torah, that it's all about Hashem. That's basically what one of the practical applications of that. Um, that it's all about Hashem and it's not about serving ourselves and our own interests at all whatsoever. It's completely connected to its source in the Torah and, com- and always staying focused on that. Um, that's very, very, very hard. It's a very hard thing to do. So we, and again, even the midot, even elevating our emotions is a debate. It's a debate whether that's even within our ability today and we'll, we'll discuss that. Um, but let's, let's learn a little bit about, we're going to see now a little bit about the the higher ideas of what's going on, okay? What's going on with it when the, the, when the Kohen is waving the Omer? Um, so chapter three ends off with Ratzo, which we said this Ratzo translates, this love of Hashem translates into, as we're trying to reach toward Hashem, 
what do we do? We do Torah and mitzvahs. So, so far, we've left our Egypt, we've left behind these, these limitations, we've released our godly soul from its, from its own personal Egypt, and we practically do Torah and mitzvahs so that we can reach towards Hashem. Now, and we said that the part of the process of doing that is to rachamim, right? That's what we discussed until now, that part of the process of being able to leave behind these limitations and reach towards, leave our own Egypt is through having mercy on our soul, right? Yaakov asher padayat Avram. That in order to release the trapped love within our heart, we have to first have mercy on our souls, okay? Now, we're going to discuss about the, the Omer. Um, are we on page 27? 27. 27. Okay, amazing. Let's start again from the top though, okay? So we can just do a little bit of a recap. Okay, so we're going to get technical now, okay? Get ready. <laughs> the Hainu. So this is accomplished through the next process. Because so far, remember we said, Ratzel is only the godly soul. How do we get the animal soul on board? Through this next process. The next process is a two-step process called the waving of the Omer and the counting of the Omer, which started, which the waving of the Omer happened on the second day, the day after Shabbat, as it's called. We'll see why. And the beginning of the counting of the Omer started on that day as well. As is written in Parshat Emor, Vehenif et Omer. And they waved the Omer, they waved the measurement of Bali. Who waved the measurement of Bali? The Kohen. Lifnei Havaya, before Havaya, which means in front of Hashem. Lirtsonchem, which means for Hashem's goodwill. But we're going to see the deeper meaning of that in a moment. Mimacharata Shabbat, from the day after the Shabbat, Yenifenu HaKohen, the Kohen should wave it. So we're going to break this down now to see what's the Avodah, what's going on specifically in the process of waving the Korban Omer. We discussed yesterday, the, the Korban Omer comes from Bali, which was very, very rare. This was not usually how they would bring offerings. They would bring offerings of wheat. And by the way, usually when they would, I think I might have mentioned this, when they would bring offerings of wheat, it was never chametz. It was always matzah, actually. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The only time that there was ever bread was on Shavuot. And we're going to discuss that. So, like, even the 12 loaves that existed on the shulchan, they were matzah. There was no chametz. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you know those grandmothers whose house is Pesach dik the whole yes. year. <laughs> like, don't go there. And it's like, Pesach just ended. Don't go in that room. It's, you know, it's me for Pesach. Um, the Beis HaMikdash was kind of like that. It was very, it, there wasn't chametz. They would bring matzah. They would, every time they would bring wheat, it wasn't leavened bread, except on Shavuot. And we'll see the significance of that a little so bit later. I don't know if that's why. I, I mean, we learn the spiritual reasons why, because, like, you know, matzah represents lack of ego, and you can't have your own ego, and they can be dash. Maybe there was also a practical idea that they didn't want to clean. <laughs> I don't know, though. I haven't seen a source for that. Or, like, would they clean it after so, they brought wait, so is the actual bread? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I don't know what the... It's interesting. I don't know what the process was of cleaning out the base of before Pesach. Yeah. But there probably was some sort of... Yeah, they must have. They must have. So that's the thing. I guess they didn't have to in most cases because, like, again, the Shulchan didn't have to be cleaned for Pesach because it was matzah there. Yeah. Um, and then also on the Mizbech, usually they would bring... Um, they, would bring matzah, they would bring unleavened bread. So maybe right off... Maybe right after Shavuos, they cleaned it up. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting. I never thought about that. Probably the Kohanim didn't like Pesach as much as Jewish women don't like Pesach today. They probably had to clean, <laughs> clean all this and um, Because anyway, people are probably bringing like their food into at least some parts of this. I don't know. Maybe you couldn't eat there. I, I don't know. <laughs> interesting. Um, but 
the only two places where we bring barley is again the korbans that the sota brings right because she well if she is a sota she behaved animalistically she gave into her animal tendencies and therefore she brings a barley offering and we bring a barley offering for the korban omer because it's the beginning of the process of elevating the animal soul which is the whole process of this time of which is animal food so so now practically down here we're elevating the mind as we're going to see of the animal soul what's happening above is something similar there's this concept a spiritual idea which is a spiritual source of angels it's called and this is the idea of the chariot above that we spoke about right the chariot above has four faces which are made up of different animals so there's this concept of animals above and it's a spiritual source for the angels for all of the angels which are called animals and the angels are the spiritual source of the physical animals that we see in this physical world today so then it brings the the uh in parentheses from Yecheska, which we'll skip over which is the vision that he had that each one of these angels had four faces and each one had a prominent face of either a lion an eagle an ox or the face of man and so as the mitzler explains page 28 that the four faces are four aspects of the merkava the face of man refers to the intellect of these angels the face of the lion was on the right side. It refers to the love of Hashem of the angels, like Chesed is on the right. The face of an ox on the left side refers to the fear of Hashem of these angels. And the face of an eagle refers to the aspect of awakening mercy from Hashem on themselves. So the source of all of the spiritual angels is in what's called the Merkava. Bless you. The Merkava were these very, very, very powerful angels. Each one was a source for a different, for the love that the angels have, for the fear that the angels have of Hashem, for the mercy that the angels have and for the intellect that the angels have so the angels of the Merkava are called chayot wild animals and barley is food for behemoth domestic animals so how are we comparing the angels of the Merkava to barley so now we're just going to bring a side point here where the Alter Rabbi is explaining that even though we had wild animals on the face of the Merkava and barley is domesticated animal food that sometimes we see that chaya is called behemoth and behemoth is called chaya basically that they're interchangeable and that these ideas are linked together the food sorry Sure. Uh, what was the man lion? Like, what did they represent? So the man represents intellect. Okay. It's the source of our godly soul, but that's a, that's a separate idea. It's the source of the intellect of the angels. So the intellectual angels are sourced in Adam. Mm-hmm. Then the Arya is found on the right side of the chariot, as described by Yechezkel. Right is the side mm-hmm. of Chesed, kindness. So it's the source of love, which is mm-hmm. the mother of love. It's the source of love for Hashem that the angels experience. The ox is on the left side, which is the source of Gevura and the awe of Hashem that the angels experience, and the eagle is in the middle, which represents um, the Tiferet, which represents the Rachamim, the mercy that they awaken upon themselves of the angels. So the source of the angels is in the Merkava, and the source of animals is the angels. And so now we're going to see that there's... Okay, now, now we're going to get into what's called the concept of Behemarabah, as we're going to see here. So skip over this, this um, source, which is just explaining that chayot, wild animals, and behema, domestic animals, are interchangeable ideas. So when we say food of animals, it can be also referring to the food of the animals in the Merkava. We can leave that aside, okay? Um, so, Bechinat Behemarabah, we're in the middle of page 29. So the source of the angels is in a place called Malchut of Atzilut, which is a place, that, which is a, a place, which is a Safira in a world that we speak about a lot. 
because Atsilas is the first world and there are no creations in Atsilas. There are no angels in Atsilas. There are no souls in Atsilas. There are some souls that are sourced in Atsilas, but what's sorry, what? What's it called again? Malchus of Atsilas. It's the lowest sphere of, of Atsilas. So the world of Atsilas is so powerful that there's not able to be any creation living even somewhat independently. But Malchus of Atsilas gathers all of the infinite sefirot above it, the six emotions of Chesed, Gevurah, Tiferet, Netzach, Yesod, and it filters it, right? And we discussed this before, it filters it. Just as when we speak, our mouth takes all of the infinite, infinity that exists in our brain and our thoughts, and it filters it into words which can communicate with other people. Malchus is taking all of these concepts and emotions and intellectual faculties of Hashem and now filtering them through the concept of spiritual speech into the world of Bria. And Bria already is the beginning of creation. Bria means creation. And that's already where angels form and souls, etc., etc. How can the world of Atsilas be so high up yet have nothing? How can it be considered the world if there's nothing? That's a really good question. Because um, usually what, what we, when we think of a world, there's creations within the world. So a world, there's actually many so spiritual worlds. Something- yeah, each one has, yeah, right. Bria is the world of intellect, and there are cre- creatures and creations within Bria that serve Hashem through intellect, etc. So Atsilas is, Atsilas comes from the word Etzel, which means next to. It's, it's very, very close to Hashem. It's receiving a tremendous amount of, of revelation. But it's still called a world because the revelation that it's receiving is going into what's called Kalim. Have you have yeah. spoke about Orot and Kalim? So the moment that you have Orot meeting Kalim, lights meeting vessels being contained in some way, even if the vessels themselves are infinite as well, infinite lights meeting infinite vessels, which is basically what's happening in Atzilut, it's still called a world because suddenly that light is being contained in some form. So it's being covered over in some form. So Atzilut, Hashem's light is shining in some sort of limited way. It's not limited enough that creations can start to feel independent. It's too powerful for that. But it's limited enough to be called a world. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, so, the, so there are even worlds beyond Atzilut where... You, well, we, we won't get into that. Um, we won't get into that. But, but the first... But, but because... Yes, there are worlds beyond Atzilut, there, but they're really, they're very, they're even less defined than Atzilut. Like they're more sense, like, they're, they're, they're like, poss- it's, the, it's the process, basically. Before there was the first Simtsum Arishan, which we did just speak, speak about at the beginning of the year, before there was just light. There was just like infinite, infinite, uncontained light. And once Hashem moved that light aside and created this empty space, and then drew the light down in a measured way, which is called the curve. The moment Hashem did that, that's the possibility for the creations of the world because it's suddenly Hashem's light, which is infinity, meeting some sort of box and parameter, right? Because it covers a line, it's limited. It has a beginning point and an end point. So the moment Hashem's infinite light, which can never be contained in anything or defined in any way, was moved aside, and Hashem drew down a limited amount of light, so the infinite light met with the kalim, with the vessels to contain it. That's the beginning of the concept called a world. And on that way down, there's many worlds, which are possibilities for more and more limitation and contraction of the light. But the moment we have like a defined world, where there's you know 
chesed on the right side, right? And gevura on the left side, which is real definition, that's in Atzilot. So the fact that there's real definition and there's a space for the light of Hashem in this area and in this area and the, the vessels are now limiting Hashem in such a defined way, that's already Atzilot. That's the beginning of the worlds as we know them. But the possibility for lights meeting vessels, which is the beginning of the possibility for worlds, starts before that. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, if you ever have, hear the idea of Adam Kadmon, Ak, I don't know if you ever hear that idea. It might come up later one day. That's considered like the first, first, first spiritual world, okay? Um, which is beyond Atzilot. Okay, so within Atzilot, we have infinite lights meeting infinite vessels, and these spherot are just totally infinite, which means that nothing can exist. But they get channeled down into Malchut, and Malchut channels them just like speech channels thought. And just as spe- speech necessitates that something else exists, right? Malchut is Hashem's kingship in Melech Balaam. There's no king without a nation. It's Hashem as he's starting to acknowledge the possibility, not the presence, but the possibility for something outside of himself. And that happens in Malchut. And Malchut of Atzilot has many, many names because it's the source of many, many things. It's called Knesset Yisrael, as we've discussed before. It's the source of the Jewish people as a whole, as a concept, so to speak. Um, it's also called Shekhinah. It's got many names. Um, and one of the names for Malchut is called Behemarabah. Because it's the, Behemarabah means the great animal. Because it's the source of angels, which are called animals. And angels, are, which are the source of the physical animals as we know them. And in order to understand why it's, what's the connection between animals and Malchus, it goes into this complicated idea. We, we haven't spoken about it before. I wonder if it's come up, though, that the name of Havaya, Hashem's name, we can extract many different names of Hashem from it, depending on the way that you combine them. Have you heard of that idea before? Like, have you heard of the name of Ma and the name of Ban? There's, it's discussed it's in Tanya. Yes, very much Kabbalistic. So, so basically, there's an idea that the way that you spell each letter of Yud and He and Vav and He, if you take the way that you spelled it and then take that Gematria, then you have a new name of Hashem, which is an extraction and a lower expression of Havaya, because Havaya then gets expressed in different levels in different ways. So one of the ways that you can spell out the name of Havaya comes to this name of Hashem called Ban. And this name of Hashem called Ban is representative of Malchus of Atzillus. And Ban, okay, we're getting complicated over here, but follow, Ban, Beis Nun, the name of Hashem, which is an extract from the name of Havaya, is the same gematria as the word Behema. Behema is Bey, two, He, five, so that's seven. Men is 40, 47, and He is five, which is 52. And Ban is Bey's, two, and Nun, which is 50. And it actually shows us here on the top, page 30, it shows us how we get to this name of Ban, Okay. Um, so the letters of Hashem's four-letter name are Yud and He and Vav and He. If you add up the gematria of that, that's 26. And so that represents, wow, it's eluding me right now. Another thing that's 26. Wow, that's embarrassing. I don't remember what it is. I have to check. Um, but that's like the, that's one of the highest expressions of the Yud and He and Vav and He. I don't remember what the 26 represents. However, each letter, when spelled out fully, adds up to more than just 26. For, so for example, you could spell Yud... Yud Vav Dalet, how you read Yud, Yud. And then the gematria of that is 20. So there are four ways to fully spell out the letters of Hashem's four-letter name. And each one represents a different expression 
of Hawaii. So this is, this is Kabbalah, okay? Um, so if, you, if you're not following, that's totally fine. Um, I remember I learned this in seminary and I was completely confused. Um, but basically, there are different numerical extractions you can take from Hawaii to give us different names of Hashem. And it's relevant because we're going to be focusing on one of those names. So one of these names, one of the four is as follows. Yud, when you spell Yud out, you can follow it Mamash here in the English, page 30 on the top, is Yud Vav Dalad, Yud, which is 20. Hey, you can spell hey as you pronounce it in four different ways. One of them is hey, hey. If you see hey, hey, it's hey. And that, Gematria, is 10. Vav, you can do vav, vav, vav. That's how you pronounce it. And that's the Gematria of 12. And then hey again, hey, hey, is 10. And this adds up to a total of 52. 52 is Beis Nun, 52, which is a name of Hashem called Ban. And it's the name of Hashem that represents Malchus of Atzillus. And that has the same gematria as the word behema. That was a lot. That was a lot. This is Kabbalah. This is like pure Kabbalah right now. Um, practically, what do we need to know? That Malchus of Atzillus is the source for the angels. Because the moment we go into Bria, which is right after Malchus of Atzillus, there's a new world that's created. And the new world that's created right afterwards is called the world of Bria. And in the world of Bria, there are angels. Where are these angels sourced? Everything needs to have a source before it comes into being. Because nothing is just... Oh, which just pops. Everything comes through an order and a chain, a chain order. So we go from Malchus, which is the source of the animals. So another name for Malchus is Behemarabah, the source of animals, the source of angels. The Kabbalah explains why, right, based on all of these names. And then we get to Bria, where the angels start to come into being and come to exist. So Malchus of Atzillus represents the spiritual source of the angels and the spiritual source of our animal soul as well. Our animal soul is sourced in the world of Malchus of Atzillus. Okay? We'll see why this is relevant in a second. Yeah? Um, it says the source, um, like the first um, thing on 30, the source of angels with the face of the lion and other animals. Is it not for the face of the one that has the face of man? Where are you seeing? Oh, oh right here. So it says v'chulei, which means um, etc. So it's all four. Oh, so man all of them. Pardon? Man can't count as man. Man is our godly soul, which makes us a man, right? Which is what characterizes us as man, is sourced in, yeah, in the face of the... But it's not called an animal, though. It's called the face of a man. It's sourced in the spiritual face of a man, which is on the Merkava. Yeah. Okay, so page 30. Shehu Shoresh, so where is the source of the Merkava, of all of these lofty spiritual angels that give birth to all the angels? The Merkava, where is the source of it? In Malchus of Atzillus, okay? So Shehu Shoresh, a Merkava, de Pnei Aryeh, Pnei Shor, Pnei Nesher, and Pnei Adam. The source of this is in Malchus of Atzillus. The Hamerkava, Haniskar Le'el. The Merkava that's mentioned above, Hushoresh, Vimakar Lakola Beimot. It's the source for all animals, the nefesh ba'amit, our animal soul, shalamata, as it exists down here, shenim shachim which are drawn down from the ultimate, its ultimate source, which is malchut avatzilot. So, so far the altar have established that malchut avatzilot is referred to as the general source of animals, since it's the source of creation of spiritual animals, angels and physical animals, as well as our animal soul. Now we will explain the idea of barley being animal food as a metaphor for Malchus consuming sparks of divinity hidden in angels and our animal soul, which are referred to as barley. Okay, so it gets a bit complicated. Again, this is the Kabbalah behind the idea. If you're not following, it's okay, but it does have English inside, so we can try, okay? Basically, 
Malchus represents a spiritual animal. Malchus, when, when we consume food, we're taking food, destroying its form, and elevating the spark. So when Malchus limits itself into creating angels and creating an animal soul that then put themselves aside and elevate themselves, it's the idea that Malchus is, is consuming animal food. The animal of Malchus is consuming the barley, which is the animal food, is elevating the sparks of that which it created. So Malchus is the ability to create and bring into being our animal soul, physical animals, and the angels. When our animal soul or, or animals or angels elevate themselves, it's the idea of Malchus, so to speak, eating animal food. Because when we eat food, we elevate the sparks. We'll see, okay? So the ability to create what? Malchus is the ability, is, is the potential for the creation of animals, of spiritual animals, which are called angels, physical animals, which are animals, and the animal inside of us, which is the animal soul. And so animal food represents the process of animals being slaughtered and elevated, angels elevating themselves, and our animal soul being elevated. Okay? So <laughs> let's see that. Okay, let's see that. So Oshara, I told you, it gets complicated now. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll read through it. We'll, we'll spend another two minutes and we'll continue. Today is, what day of the week is it? It's Monday, yeah, yeah, right? Monday. Only Monday. <laughs> I'm like, maybe it's already the end of the week. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, so, and we'll finish with this idea and then we're going to, again, take it practically and move on to, to the Midot. Right, the elevation of the midot, which is the counting of the Omer, not the offering of the Omer, which gets a little bit more simple. So, Sa'ara is the, if you break up the word Sa'ara, which means barley, you get Shior Hay, which means a measurement, a limitation of five. And we spoke about this briefly before, that there are five expressions, ways that we speak, five different places within the mouth that we speak from. It's called the five Lishonot, the five ways of speech. And again, I don't remember, there's a name for each one when we speak all the way back from the back of our throat, when we speak from our palate, when we speak from our lips, they are each one of the aleph base are split up into these five categories. And this is the concept called she or hey, the five limitations and aspects of speech. Okay? So, saora, bali, we know is, can, can be connected with the idea of the five aspects of speech. And who represents speech? Malchus. Malchus of Atsilus is the place of speech. And so the idea is that when Malchus limits itself in five different forms and expressions, when Malchus limits itself, it's able to then create angels. It's able to create our animal soul. It's able to create animals. It's able to create the whole world as we know it. It all comes from Malchus limiting itself. And when that happens, there's these new creations that come into being and they can elevate themselves, rise back to their source, just as when we eat food, right? We're elevating it back to its source. And when that happens, Malchus is going to get an elevation as well. So Malchus contracts itself, limits itself into the form of speech, which is very much limiting that which is going on in the brain. But it creates new entities that then can raise themselves up and raise Malchus up with it to an even higher level. Does that make sense? Actually, yeah. Actually, okay. I asked Rabbi Kaufman to like explain this last week, I think, and so to explain what we're like discussing the, right now, like or what it means by like the the five aspects oh, of speech. Well, okay. He was anatomically. Yeah. Yeah. No, but then he talked about how it connects back. Well, anatomically, he explained how there's different parts of our mouth that we speak with. Yeah. Right. But then he like did brief connection to like what it means and like Chassidus or. Okay. 
Very interesting. So do you remember what they were? Because I know there's one deep in the throat. I mean, yeah, like throat, tongue, the, 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 the teeth. Palate. The teeth, the right, palate. we speak with that, like shin. Shin, we're speaking with our teeth, yeah. right? Mem, we're speaking with our mouth, with our lips. Yeah. And then like nun is with our, our palate, right? Nun. It's very interesting. So, so there's a spiritual idea of the fact that there's five ways of speech, which is that there are different ways that Malchus can express itself through speech, limit itself to then bring creations into being. Okay, so we will continue with this tomorrow and literally just one more page and then it'll bring a nice little uh, chart for us to look at and, um, and then we'll speak a little bit about, about, um, about elevating our midot because this is all the idea of elevating our mind which is the process of the, of the waving of the Omer, okay? Thank you. We're learning some real, uh, real Kabbalah and Okay, legit stuff.